return give that love and sacrifice. The sacrifice, O oh Lord, of thanksgiving. The sacrifice of praise. The sacrifice, O oh Lord, of keeping ourselves unspotted from the world, and so on and so on. May our love to you be pure and unadulterated by the world and by our own sin. And may that love grow even as we are looking to you this day. For Christ's sake, Amen. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to deviate just for the day in that it is the Lord's Supper Sunday. And let me remind all of us if uh, we have any uncertainties about our conversion experience and our relationship to Jesus, I would recommend that in the bulletin that you turn to the back page and look at the requirements, the biblical requirements of those who really rightfully can partake of the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner that's honoring to the Lord. Also on this day, too, I want to just put a little plug in for our small groups that will be starting in two weeks. So if you're not a part of a small group, I want to encourage you to consider being part of one. It's a way that you can connect to your brothers here locally and sisters. It's an awesome time of fellowship between the saints, and it's hopefully a place that you can grow and learn more about your relationship to Christ and grow in your desire to want to follow him and your journey of life through this world as we head our way to our everlasting celestial city when we'll be with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So this is a service that we want to do as a church to one another and building each other up in a discipleship fashion. So please see either Seth or myself uh, to be sure you're plugged into one of the uh, places that we have a lot of different locations that you can be a part of. So uh, we'll try to fit you in, of course, what would be, we think, a best location for you. Okay. With that in mind, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, the verse that we're going to be concentrated on, verse 16. But I just want to read the verse before it. In verse 15, it says, I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. I like that expression. That's the NIV translation. The New American Standard says, I speak as to wise people. And you know, you're not wise, you're not even sp sensible spiritually unless you're born again. And on top of that, not that all born again people are sensible, which I think basically means common sense is something that maybe some of us could improve on. But oftentimes, we sometimes think that there has to be a, a, a high level of spirituality to comprehend certain things or practical things in the way we which live our lives or counsel that we might give to people. Oftentimes it's just like this. I speak as to wise or sensible people. We should all as believers have a sensibility, of a practicality, a wisdom to be able to judge certain things in this lifetime. And we know that from 1 Corinthians 6. Paul even says, do you not know that the saints will judge angels? And if we're going to judge the world and we're going to judge angels, aren't you worthy to judge even the smallest matters? Everything in comparison is small compared to in the end run when we will be accompanying the Lord in the judgment. It's hard to comprehend that, but that's what it says, that even you and I as believers are going to be engaged in the judging of angels. Who would ever think that we could have such a lofty position to be judging angels? It, there's no loftiness in ourselves, but it all comes because of the grace of God in us.
that has enabled us and has filled us. There was a pastor who was visiting families um, in his parish, and he had stopped at one of the homes, and he had asked the family if they could quote some verses. And there were some young children, like we have in our church right here today. I'm wondering if, if a pastor or someone came to your house, if this could be offered to your home. Could some of you, would you quote a verse of the Bible to me? Well, one of the young girls, I think she was just a five-year-old, had memorized John 3.16 and said it this way. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have internal life. And, you know, the pastor for a moment wanted to intervene and say, but he stopped and said, isn't that an interesting angle to what we have as a gift? We often overlook that part. And that's something I want to emphasize today is that God has not just given you eternal life, but an internal life. That's the magic, if I can put it that way, of salvation, that you have something in you that you didn't possess previously that connects you with one another, connects you with the Lord, and gives you this enlightenment that you would not otherwise know. All right, go with me to verse 16 now. The cup of blessing which we bless. Is it not a participation or a communion in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. We who are many are one body, for we are all partakers of the one bread. Now, this is kind of interesting. I want to pause here for a moment because you have a reversal, don't you? You have the, the cup mentioned first and the bread mentioned second, which is not the normal order, of course. When Jesus hosted the Lord's Supper, he took the bread, broke it, gave it to his disciples. Then after supper, he took the cup and he passed the cup to his disciples. So it's the bread first and the cup second. The bread speaking of his body, his physical body. The blood, of course, speaking about the finality of his cross work when he shed his precious blood for the ultimate forgiveness and remission of sins that you and I who have believed on the Lord received by faith in the Lord Jesus. So why then does the author here, Paul, reverse the order and put bread second? It's because there's an emphasis that Paul wants to drive home to the Corinthians, and that is something I would like to emphasize with you this morning, is the unity in the body of Christ. The bread which we break, 16b, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? You know, we're having the Lord's Supper today, and this, this bread here will, is symbolical, will be some, symbolized as the body of our Lord Jesus but it also has a secondary or a, you could say, another interpretation. That would be that the bread represents the members of the body of Christ. Because in, when we share the bread, when we partake of the bread, we are having a commonality, a fellowship among ourselves. This is the highest kind of communion that people can have on earth is to share the elements of the Lord's Supper, and particularly the bread. You know, in a wedding, oftentimes, when, that when they're done, the, the couple might decide that they would like to kind of amplify the truth 
about the two becoming one, which is an amazing thought when you think of it. The two shall become one. A man shall leave his father's house and join himself to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, how does that happen? This is not talking about necessarily the physical act. It's talking about a union that the, the, the two have to one another. So in a wedding ceremony, sometimes there'll be a unity candle where the two lidded candles will somehow get put into one candle and it symbolizes now we are no longer independent individuals. We are now uniting our hearts to one another in holy matrimony and we are one, in a sense, one person, one together. Or maybe even, I think, if I remember, uh, the Clotus wedding. Didn't you have the mixture of the sand? And you had different colors. Uh, Mike was the black color, and Jillian was the white color, no doubt. I don't remember the colors, but I think that's more uh, ex expressive. Of, anyway, the, the two became one. Well, that's one truth that the Bible brings out. Another union that the Bible brings out is about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Every one of you that is, are born again have had the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, you may not be able to pinpoint it. I know that it can be sometimes foggy in our minds, but there was a distinct point in your life when the Holy Spirit came into your life and you became a genuine, full-blown child of God and the Holy Spirit infilled you, sealed you, and united you to Christ and to one another. That's amazing. I didn't know that when I got saved. I didn't know how intimate my life was going to be with fellow people that I wouldn't otherwise probably have anything to do with or me with them. Because I'm an oddball and everybody else is normal, I didn't think that people would actually love me and that I would even love them. But when we get saved, it, it's the miracle of how life works, the life of God in you. So I love what that girl said. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have internal life. And that internal life that you have is the life that every other believer has. And that's why we have this closeness to one another. And that closeness can be expressed in many ways. Our sister that, that has terminal cancer or our sister Patty that right, right now is on a flight down to North Carolina to retrieve some of her brother's belongings that he left behind as he overdosed earlier this week. And her heart is breaking for just walking into his apartment and what, seeing the funeral director and all that's involved with that. Our heart goes out to her because we're one with her. Or the martyrs that we've been reading about or hearing about the last couple of weeks. Those aren't distant historic stories merely to sort of fascinate us, but those are our spiritual ancestors. When my father was, uh, who was Albanian, born in Albania, and he was about to be born, the Ottoman Empire had rule, that is the Turks, had the rules over the country of Albania at the time, and there was a curfew that men were not to go out after dark. And when my father was about to be born and his mother caught wind of it, so she put on a coat and she went out. It was dark as a woman and she was shot by the Turks dead on the streets because of her venturing out to help her daughter bear her child. That ha ha I, 
I can relate to that from my family standpoint. I've heard the story over and over. It's not, it's not made up. But think of the martyrs that have died as our brother shared with us. Those are our family that have gone through what they've gone through. Today's the Lord's Supper. And guess what? The one who really was martyred, not for himself, not for just a cause, but for a people. He died for you. He died for me. How appreciative are you of that? Brother Randy challenged me the other night, and he said in front of the Bible study group at Sandy Hill, How man, Gary, what motivates you to want to follow Jesus? Or how did you put it, Randy? What motivates you to, to, be, to be obedient? And what would you say? What motivates you to want to live for Christ? Paul says, The love of Christ constrains us. That we thus judge, if one died for all, then all were dead, and he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him who died for them and rose again. Is that your heart's desire? If you're failing and fading, and your Christianity is sort of loosening, and you're getting all blocked up with all kinds of interferences with temporal things, that is blocking your spiritual vision, I want to encourage you and I today to let's go back to Calvary. Let's remember what he did for us so that when we leave this place, we can say, thank you, Lord, for the reminder of the debt that you paid for me. The breaking of bread. It unites us to one another. So the bread is symbolical both of the physical body of Christ that was beaten and bruised, that bore the penalty of sin. Peter says, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. In his own body. Not someone else's body, but his own body. All our sins were laid on Jesus. Isaiah 53, 6, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. All who are believers, all of his people, all of his elect people, their sins were laid upon him. And you and I, like when John writes to the woman, he says, to the elect lady, we need to believe ourselves and know ourselves to be the elect of God. Make your calling and election sure, for if you know these things, you'll never fall. What a blessed thing it is to discover that you are an elect of God. There was a pastor in London, outside of London, named John Fawcett. F-A-W-C-E-T-T. He was pastoring a small little church. They were having a very difficult time supporting him and his family. And uh, it seemed like it was time to move on. He got, a, he got an invitation to pastor a larger church and one that would be able to provide for him better in London. So he made plans to move his family to London, and they had wagons in those days. This is 1765. The wagons had come to the home, and they were starting to load up the little furniture that he did have and his small belongings. And while they were doing it, the church family started to come to his home, and they were crying, and they were weeping, and they were just saying how much they appreciated him and they wished that he could possibly have stayed. And they weren't trying to dissuade him at all. 
And his wife was listening to these cries and these pleas and these tears. And, and she said to the ones with her husband's consent, he then turned to the wagon loaders and he said, unload the wagons. We cannot break these wonderful ties of fellowship. That meant more to him than London and the city and the big church and lots of people listening to him and the more money that he would be getting to support himself and his family. These wonderful ties of fellowship, John Fawcett happened to be the same author who, because of this experience, wrote that famous song and hymn. I don't know if we're going to sing it in a couple of weeks. It's one of your favorites. It's not the best sounding song, but the words are awesome. And I know you'll know it when I quote the first stanza. Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. The fellowship of kindred minds is like to that above. We cannot break these wonderful ties of fellowship. He said to those that were loading up the wagon, unload them. We cannot break these wonderful ties. And that's why, lady, he writes the song, Blessed be the tie that binds our heart to Christian love. Can we get the second uh, clip up there? Second picture, Michael. This is a quote from Jordan, uh, Gordon Fee in his commentary on 1 Corinthians that I really think is a phenomenal quotation talking about our relationship to one another and how we live as Christians and the internal life that we do have. He says, with no necessity to return to the law, the Christian faith has inherent within it something so radical that it absolutizes certain behavior. Being saved creates benefits of grace and freedom, yet does not give us license for religious or moral licentiousness. It binds us to one another. Hallelujah. It binds us to one another in a common fellowship with Christ and the new covenant in such a way that our behavior, I love this, is radicalized toward the law of Christ. We're not law followers. We're Christ followers. He's above the law. He has supplemented the law. When Elijah and Moses appear on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter wants to build one, one shrine for Moses and one for Elijah and one for Jesus. Nonsense. Moses and Elijah disappear, and then the voice of God from heaven says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. Moses the law, Elijah the prophets. A greater than Moses and a greater than Elijah has come. We are obedient to the law of the covenant. New covenant, that is. The law of Christ. Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's the love that's embraced in the new covenant when Jesus says to love one another. A new commandment I give to you to love one another. Well, love was a commandment in the Old Testament. I shouldn't say commandment, but it was expected There was love there, but now there's a heightening. There's an advancement, if you will. There's a greater reason now for there to be love between the covenant community because we have that internal life, that fellowship with one another. The bread which we break 
We who are many are one body, for we are all partakers of the one bread. That, go to the next slide, Mike. You know, the closest thing that I personally can, in a, in a sense, think about uh, in regards to breaking bread, uh, when I had gone with my wife to Albania uh, to visit the country and my family that I had over there, I still do, I had never met them before, only heard about them, and uh, they were trying to do different things with us and took us different places. And one of the places they took us was to a graveyard of deceased family members. Now, I'm a guest. I don't really know what's going on, but they brought a bunch of food with them. And it, I just thought, well, maybe there's picnic benches there or uh, they're going to have something on this. But what they did is they put food on the grave and on the ground in front of the, the, uh, the, the tombstone and gathered around and they were holding hands and had some kind of a prayer of some sort that I wasn't even able to pick up on. And I thought, what are they doing? And I asked later, and I, I figured it out partly anyway, that they believed that they were having communion with the dead, with their dead relatives. And this was a way of keeping alive their memory and trying to stay in contact with them. Well, that is a, 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 an error. That's false. There's no such thing. Um, it, it goes back, though, in, in ancient history. You will find that. It's kind of like ancestry worship, which is, is similar to this. But in this case, it reminded me as I was just thinking about it this morning, I thought, you know, Jesus died, and we're having communion with him. But he's alive. He's at the right hand of God. We're not eating bread with a, a dead person. We're eating bread with a live person, with someone who's risen from the dead. When he was on earth here, he hosted the Lord's Supper. He was the one that took the bread and broke it and gave it to them. He was the one that took the cup and says, this is the, and he gave it to them. He hosted it. And now Jesus says, we're two or three gathered together in my name. There am I in the midst of them. And so even in the Lord's Supper, we can, in a sense, see Christ hosting this for us, and we take it as a fond remembrance of what he did on our behalf. Could we get the next slide up, please? Do this in remembrance of me. Look at the following verses, 18. Consider the people of Israel. And what he had been doing was considering the people of Israel. If you look at the first part of 1 Corinthians 10, when he talks about they all came out of Egypt under Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They were baptized unto Moses. They did all eat of the same spiritual meat and of the same spiritual drink, which has a, you could say, a parallel to the Lord's Supper with the bread and with the cup. They had, you could say, spiritual benefits. God rained manna from heaven. He had the rock smitten and water came forth. So their hunger, their thirst was satisfied. But yet they fell in the wilderness. The last thing they did was idolatry. And that's why Paul says in the 14th chapter, 14th verse of the chapter, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. So he's using Israel as an example that whatever things that happened aforetime were written for our admonition. Paul is admonishing the Christians, don't follow the example of Israel. They're examples of people who did not follow faithfully after the Lord. Verse 18, consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants 
in the altar. And this was actually going on. Of course, this, is, this was written in around 5152 AD, just 20 or so years after Christ's crucifixion. Judaism was still up and running. Jews were still practicing their Judaism. And Paul has that in mind. And of course, the Corinthians were composed of Jews as well as Gentiles in their body of, of people. So he's reminding them that all the Israelites uh, who eat the sacrifices, they're participants at the altar. That is the altar where, the, temp- where the, t- the temple contained the altar. And every Israelite partook of it. That's where they, That was their, you could say, hub. That was their central spot of, of spirituality or of association with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob. Now verse 19, he says, What do I imply then? The food offered to idols... Is anything or that is it or that an idol is anything? Why is he going into idolatry? He told him to flee from idolatry. He'll explain it in the next verse. No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to to be participants with demons. Sometimes things that we think are just so okay, not a big deal. But there really, there's a spiritual thing going on behind them. There's a reality behind it. There are no other gods other than one true God. Behold, O Israel, the Lord your God is one Lord. Period. The true and living God. Any other God would be with a small g, a God of the imagination of man's mind, or also in the realm of demons. Demons in God's lowercase g, and idolatry go together. So in Corinth, of course, there was a practicing of idolatry. That was what was going on. And the Corinthians, being citizens of Corinth, would obviously integrate with their family and friends and so on. And sometimes their testimony would have been hindered by their association with idolatrous practices and eating of foods that were offered to demons. And what's Paul's point here? Verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. I do not want you to be participants of that. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Wow. How does that apply to us? How can we be partaker of a table of demons? Well, of course, we have to read everything as a first century reader would read it. Not everything that's written to them was written to us particularly, although everything in the scripture that was written to them has an application to us. How can we have such an application? Well, look at in 1 Corinthians 5, when Paul talks about the man who was living with his father's wife, living, I mean, bed and board with her, Paul's saying, with such a one know not to eat, to put away from among yourselves that wicked person and to what? to cast him into the realm of the devil. The realm of the devil. That's what was supposed to be done. There's really two realms in the world. We have two atoms and we have two this, we have two that, but we have two realms. One is satanic and one is the saviors. And when you get saved, you will move from one table to the other table. The thought of the table of the Lord is actually wider. We're not talking about this physical wooden table or any specific altar, so to speak. 
We're talking about communion of the body of believers that gather around the person and work of Christ through the elements. So even though when I leave, I'm leaving today from having celebrated the Lord's Supper, and next week or these days following, I'm not going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper, but amazingly, I don't leave the Lord's table. You follow me on this? We're always at the Lord's table. That, that's our belonging. It's to Christ and his work and what he accomplished for us. That's our union. That's why it says in Hebrews about how can they who serve the tabernacle be at our altar? This is, so to speak, the elements, the table of the Lord, not this physical table, is our altar, so to speak. So those who serve the tabernacle cannot be partakers of our, Hebrews calls it an altar, and I believe it's referring to the same general truth about the Lord's table. Every child of God has been brought to the Lord's table. Then, as table members, we are entitled to take the Lord's Supper, which we put on, it could be put on a, carpet on the floor or in a chair it, there's nothing sacred about this piece of wood or even if it has nice words on it or a beautiful decoration like where's that table up there Mike that we had before that's kind of a little more decorous than what we have here and some of them are very elaborate there's nothing wrong with this I'm, I'm not against that at all but we don't worship that that's not a sacred object to us what's sacred is the symbolism behind these elements I've been meeting very regularly with a priest or two or three that want to have Bible studies with me. And um, one of the big topics is about the Lord's Supper, the elements, and the idea that's trying to be, it was more aggressive than it has been lately, but to try to impress upon me that the elements are miraculously transformed into the literal body and blood of the Lord, known as transubstantiation. And we've gone back and forth on that, and it's a subject that's pretty much behind us. We don't believe that these elements actually get transformed to the physical body and blood of Jesus, that we're not ingesting Jesus personally. He didn't mean that at all, ever, and didn't intend that to be. But these are, like so many other things in the Scripture, these are elements, these are objects symbolizing, memorializing for us what Jesus accomplished on the cross. The body that was given up on Calvary and the blood that was shed. How much does that mean to you and I today as we're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper soon? This holy feast where we go back in the remembrance of him. It's a high honor, is it not, to be seated at the Lord's table. There is something inherent in the nature of the Christian meal that makes participation in it like no other. Other, It's incomparable to anything. I know we enjoy sometimes meals with one another, and I love good food. If you invite me over, I love those, those briskets, the lamb chops, and I could give you a list of things that I'm starting to salivate right now just talking about them. But we should all have this holy desire to want to partake of the Lord's Supper. And there is a solidarity of the fellowship of believers created by our sharing in this one bread, this one loaf. 
She has not multiple loads. This is why it's kind of difficult sometimes with COVID and all that. That's kind of behind us, I hope. But I always wanted to have the symbolism of bread, one piece of bread symbolizing the, bo- the, the, uh, the members of all of the body of Jesus Christ. So when the bread is broken, then it's distributed as we are all partaking of the same bread, which represents all of us in communion with one another, but also it's a reminder to us of his body that was given for our sakes on Calvary's cross. Communing and communing, communing with one another and communion with the Lord. Those are the two things that come along with being a Christian. That internal life that we have, it binds us to one another. It binds us to the cross of Calvary. How can we forget Calvary? It should be foremost in our minds all of the time. So Randy, what should motivate us? It should be the cross. When I behold the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gains I count but loss, and poor contempt on all my pride. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that would be an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my heart, my life, my all. Can you say amen, people? It demands my heart, my life, my all. Who would ever die for me? And who would ever think that God the Son would be a substitute for my and your sin? Talk about wanting to be grateful. We should be the most grateful people on this side of glory. Angels can't even worship the way we worship. You know why? Because the blood doesn't mean to them what it means to us. There's an atoning work that Christ performed for his people. For you, for me, his blood was shed for me, shed for you. That should be meaningful. We should in our minds be able to go back to that cross and revisit it over and over again and say, was it for me, for me alone, the Savior left the glorious throne, the dazzling splendors of the sky. Was it for me, the Savior died. And we who are believers today are saying, amen, he died for me. So let's have an open season of praise uh, Some brother, open us up with a season of praise to the Lamb of God. Not a prayer time, but a praise time to the Lamb of God who bled and died for us at Calvary. Oh, excuse me. We're going to have songs right after the song set. (laughs) I don't want to miss that. That's going to elevate our thoughts to the cross as well. And once our last song is completed, uh, maybe Brother Pat, could you open that season up with just a word of praise to the Lamb? And so come on up, Josiah and Nikki, as we uh, continue in our worship of the Lord, and I hope that the Lord has blessed you in the thoughts that have been expressed, and especially it's from the Word of God to draw us closer to one another, and more importantly, to the Lord Jesus. And in a sense, they both go together. You can't love one and not love the other. We all have that internal love. Praise God.